In this episode, we have cases that David Politis has investigated and covered. So credit to David for all of his hard work. In June of 1969, Dennis Martin, a six-year-old boy from Knoxville, Tennessee, had taken a trip to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It was Father's Day weekend, and he was accompanied by his brother, his father, and even his grandfather. His grandfather was getting older, but this camping trip was a family tradition for the Martins. They set up camp in their usual spot near Russell Field, and after dinner they hung out, talked, and eventually went to bed. The next morning after breakfast, they hiked a few miles to another favorite campsite closer to the Appalachian Trail. The plan was to spend the night there and leave the next day. As they were setting up camp, the brothers were running around sword fighting with sticks, throwing mud bombs at each other, and just having a good time. A father and his two boys came walking up the trailhead back to their campsite. They stopped and chatted with Dennis's dad and grandfather for a bit. They hit it off and the man eventually asked if it would be okay if he brought his boys back to play. Dennis's father said, absolutely, that sounds like a great idea. My boys could use some company before they get sick of each other. 30 minutes later, the man showed back up with his boys, some hot dogs and a few beers to share. The adults sat down on some rocks and enjoyed a beer, and the kids took off to play. The boys struck up a game of hide and seek. Dennis being the youngest, of course, he was it first. Even though the boys were close, Mr. Martin kept a watchful eye over his sons, especially Dennis. He was only six, and they were in the wilderness. This area had bears, bobcats, and his biggest worry, feral hogs that were known to be aggressive. Mr. Martin would say that he saw Dennis hiding behind a tree, and every time he looked up, Dennis was still there, dipping behind the tree every time one of the other boys would come near. He figured his youngest son had found a pretty good hiding spot. About an hour had passed and it was time to eat. Dennis's dad went to round everyone up and made the boys playfully scatter into hiding places trying to make Mr. Martin be it. He laughed but told them to come out for dinner, so they all did. When they got back to camp, roughly 50 yards away, everyone was there except for Dennis. Mr. Martin hopped up to go get him. He literally saw Dennis walk behind the same tree he had been hiding the entire game of hide-and-seek. But when he got there, Dennis wasn't there. He was confused. He watched him with his own eyes behind that tree. Where could he have gone? Mr. Martin ran back to the campsite. Dennis wasn't there. He asked the boys where he was and to come clean if they knew where he was hiding. He could tell the boys didn't know. At this time, Mr. Martin took off sprinting. He got on the Appalachian Trail and ran until he knew there was no way that Dennis could have gotten this far in this brief period of time. It was reported that Mr. Martin ran over two miles. The others at the time had branched out to look for him, but no one could find him. Dennis's grandfather hiked out to Cades Cove Ranger Station to report to authorities that the boy was missing. They promptly sent a search team to canvas the area. Dennis's father and other family continued looking. It was roughly 6 p.m., so there were only a few more hours of daylight left. When the park search and rescue team couldn't find anything, the National Guard was called in, 
along with the Army's special forces. They began their search, but it was not under the best conditions. The day was quickly approaching nightfall, and a storm system had moved into the area and would eventually dump a total of three inches of rain over the next few hours. The torrential downpour washed away trails and made the search extremely difficult. Not to mention it washed away any clues that might have led them to young Dennis's whereabouts. The search for Dennis Martin would involve over 1,400 people, which, on another note, some people thought that this many searchers could have obscured potential clues. It would be the largest search in Tennessee history, and eventually covered 56 square miles. The search was minimized on June 26th, even though over a thousand people were still searching on that day. Three days later on the 29th, the search would be abandoned, and officials would formally close the search on the 14th of September, leaving the whereabouts of young Dennis Martin a mystery. The Martin family offered a $5,000 reward, roughly $35,000 today, for any information leading to the discovery of their son. The family also employed a psychic to help find him. Neither provided any helpful info on Dennis's location. Now here is where the story adds another twist. As I mentioned before, author and researcher David Politis covered this story originally, and during his research he uncovered a very startling account from a family that had visited the Smoky Mountains Park at the exact time of Dennis Martin's disappearance. The Key family had coincidentally showed up at the park for Father's Day weekend as well. When they arrived, they asked park personnel where they could go to see some wildlife from a distance. They just so happened to point them in the general vicinity that the Martin family had been camping. When the Key family set up camp and eventually trekked off to do some animal watching, they came to the end of a trailhead and heard this high-pitched scream. They knew the general direction the sound had came from, but they didn't see anyone or anything. A few minutes later, to the north of their position, they saw a bear, or what they thought was a bear, walking across a mountainside. But there was something odd about this sighting. Roughly an hour or so after the sighting, the Key family would be approached by park officials and notified about the missing boy. They were asked if they had seen any sign of the six-year-old or anything out of the ordinary. Mr. Key started to describe what his family had seen running across the mountainside. At first glance, the entire family thought they were watching a bear on a hillside. One of the Key children was the first to point out that the bear was holding something, something thrown over its shoulder. Mr. Key continued saying that the animal that they were seeing on the hillside was definitely covered in hair and gave them no reason to believe it was anything more than a bear. But then it started to run. It was already on two legs, but when it started running, it was obvious it wasn't a bear. It was far more agile, ducking and dodging through the brush and trees, all while carrying something. Mr. Key and his family were blown away. They weren't sure what they were witnessing. Unbeknownst to them, Dennis Martin was missing. They told authorities all of this information. Mr. Key would be interviewed again about his encounter a few weeks later, but after that, he never heard from them again. 
Years later, he was asked about Dennis Martin's disappearance, and he would say that he could tell that park rangers didn't believe what he and his family were telling them. He was aware that the boy had never been found. As of today, Dennis Martin has been missing from the Great Smoky Mountains National Park for 53 years and two months. We hope his family will be able to find some peace someday. Thanks for watching and let me know in the comments what you think might have happened to young Dennis Martin. This story takes place upstate New York, in Lake George Wild Forest to be exact, where an ex-paratrooper walked into the woods and never walked out. Tom Messick was described by his wife as a man's man, who would never pass up an opportunity to help someone. She can't recall ever hearing anyone say a bad thing about Tom or not liking him, and that says a lot because at the time of his disappearance, they had been married for 56 years. Tom was an avid camper and a seasoned outdoorsman. He was always eager to share his love of the outdoors with his family. Throughout his life, during and after his service in the military, he found time for his true passion, hunting and fishing. If you combine those things with his wife and children, Tom had all that he needed. Tom began hunting as a kid with his father and grandfather and had been hooked ever since. In November of 2015, Tom Messick and his hunting buddies and their sons took their annual hunting trip. This trip, only to be outdone by Tom's marriage to Beverly, has happened every year for 55 years. The same spot, the same core group of guys give or take a couple of substitutes throughout the years of course. This particular year, Tom was in danger of missing the trip. He had just gotten over a bout of shingles, and his years in the military were wearing him down in his older age. At 20, he had a gunpowder accident and was 90% blind in his right eye. His ears were pretty much shot, as well as his knees from all of his helicopter jumps. Nevertheless, Tom wasn't going to miss the trip. He was a loyal friend and father. On November 15th, the seven men arrived at Lily Pond via Lily Pond Road, a gravel road that was two miles long and took roughly 12 minutes to drive. This hunt was really just a hunt to say that they hunted. No one had high expectations. It was in the middle of the day around noon, and they were only planning on hunting for two hours or so. The men parked their trucks in a parking lot near the pond and made their game plan. They decided that the four older men, all in their 80s, would walk down an access road near the bottom of the hill, and the three younger sons would walk the snowmobile path up the hill, turn around and push any deer that might be in the area towards the men posted at the bottom of the hill. This style of hunting is known as a deer drive. The four older men, including Tom, took off down the access road. They had their walkie-talkies, rifles, and necessary hunting apparel and gear. When they got to their agreed-upon spot, the men spaced 100 yards apart and were to walk 30 to 40 yards into the woods and find a spot to sit. They were to just stay put and wait for the other guys to push any deer towards them. Tom was the furthest of the four men as they spread out. The men were 100 yards apart and separated by a moderately dense forest. Nothing crazy. They were bantering back and forth on the walkie-talkies, waiting for a shot at something. Now, I guess this is a good time to mention that in the 55 years the men had been going on this trip, 
They had never hunted in this particular area of the woods. Their camp was only a few miles away, and they usually hunted right around camp. The area hunted on this particular day was all part of the same forest. The same type of terrain and conditions, nothing out of the ordinary really, until there was. The men all had radios, and after no one spotted any wildlife, they decided to call everyone in. It was around 3 p.m. and they were going to head back to camp. Everyone met back at the trucks, everyone except for Tom. Someone jokingly mentioned him being lost, which got a chuckle from everyone because Tom was the most experienced of them all. He taught hunter safety courses and even survival classes for dozens of years. Everyone was looking around, waiting for him just to walk out of the woods, but that never happened. After 10 minutes, Rob led everyone into the woods to look for his father. They were yelling his name and firing shots with their rifles, trying to get him on the walkie-talkie. In their minds, he was missing at this point. He was 82 years old, and there was no way he'd be able to get out of earshot from the other guys that quickly. One of Tom's friends broke off from the search and went to notify park authorities. Rob made the tough call to his mom saying, We lost dad, but don't worry, we'll find him. She said she was getting in her car and coming down there. Nightfall was creeping closer. Last light on that day would be around 7.34 p.m. At that time, the decision was made for three of the men to continue to search and for the other three to stay at the truck. The men searching were beeping the horn and firing shots into the air. They never found any sign of Tom that night. The next day, the New York State Forest Rangers were on the scene. They brought their emergency response team and organized a grid search. A grid search is most commonly used for missing persons. You form a long line of people marching like soldiers across a search area. Trained grid searchers are taught to move slowly and deliberately through an area in a straight line. It is important for each searcher to maintain their spacing with the person on each side. It is also important not to take the path of least resistance, such as walking around a large patch of thorns. Grid searchers rarely find the victim, however, they almost always find any and all clues which might be in the area. In this particular search, they used bump lines so when they were finished with an area of the grid, they would tie it off with string, so everyone knew that that section had been searched. They would then flip over and repeat on the next adjacent section. This type of search method leaves no stones unturned. If someone or something is there, it will be found. Unfortunately, after repeated search attempts covering four miles, nothing at all was recovered. Not one thing. The next few days, divers searched the ponds and everything deeper than a mud puddle. The state police flew over with infrared helicopters. Over 60 organizations were involved. The Department of Corrections and others brought their search and rescue dogs. Not a single dog ever picked up the scent of Tom, and nothing, not even his rifle, was found. People began to ask if Tom was related to the governor, or someone very important with the number of people and resources that were being poured into this search. On the fourth day for the search of Tom, things got a little weird. Out of nowhere, two FBI agents showed up on the scene. Now for those that don't know, the FBI doesn't normally search for missing persons, especially adults. 
even for children to be searched for, there are certain criteria that need to be met to elicit the FBI's help. Nevertheless, they were there looking in on the search for Tom Messick. They met with his wife Beverly and were quoted saying something doesn't seem right about this case. She obviously agreed but was told by the agents they couldn't speak on the case until they received more information and or a recovery was made. Another peculiar detail about the woods that they were in was that they seemed devoid of all wildlife. All seven of the guys mentioned that odd detail and days later several search and rescue members did as well. There were no birds, no squirrels or even bugs. No movement or typical forest noises at all. And Sid Sharp, one of Tom's best friends, was interviewed by authorities in which he told them that he heard a very odd noise in the woods that day. Something he had never heard before in all his years in the woods. Almost indescribable. The closest thing he could relate it to would be the sound of a large trap door shutting. Authorities didn't quite know what to do with this information, and Sid was never asked about it again after that initial interview. He still talks about it though until this day. The search for Tom would officially be concluded on November 26th of 2015. Even Beverly and her sons would leave the area and head home around Thanksgiving. They had no answers. A casual annual hunting trip that was supposed to create more memories was marred by Tom's disappearance. A shocking side note to the Tom Messick case was that on the ninth day of the search for Tom, the New York Forest Rangers were pulled off his search to go 40 miles south of Schulerville, New York, where a 68-year-old man by the name of Fred Drum was reported missing by his wife after she returned on Thanksgiving Day. Another huge manhunt and search and rescue ensued, complete with searchers on foot, canine dogs, and helicopter support. He was never found and neither were any of his items. I think I speak for everyone when I say that these two cases seem far more unusual than just a coincidence. Two elderly men, known hunters and seasoned outdoorsmen, go missing in a rural part of New York State. They have just disappeared into thin air it seems. Continued efforts over the years have yielded no clues to the fate of these two men. What could have happened to these men? I'd love to know your thoughts. Tell me what you think happened to Tom. Personally, I'm torn. I think there is more to that sound that his friend Sid heard in the woods. The sound of the trap door closing. Was that some sort of portal? Does his disappearance have supernatural elements? Or was it something more sinister? Could he have wandered out to the road and been hit by a drunk driver, and out of fear of getting in trouble, they disposed of Tom's body? Or did he simply fall into a crevasse and pass away from his injuries? I think we can rule out an animal attack. I feel like if he was attacked by an animal, there would have been evidence of that. The more exposure this case gets, the more likely the Messick family will gain closure. If you throw the disappearance of Fred Drum into this, the case gets even stranger. Thanks for watching and let me know what you think about this in the comments. On May 14th of 1950, two-year-old Jackie Copeland was having fun at a picnic in Pleasantville, Pennsylvania with his three sisters who were all older than him. This picnic was held for the firm that Jackie's father ran, so there were a large number of adults in attendance 
in addition to a large number of other children. It was situated on a hill that overlooked a very swampy woodland. Jackie's parents were doing what most parents do at adult parties, trying to keep an eye on Jackie and his three sisters while at the same time attempting to have conversations with some of the other grown-ups. Jackie's mom was very watchful over her youngest child. Jackie was a great kid, but he was the youngest one there and was super friendly. He would play with anyone and everyone. Jackie's parents were having a conversation with another couple when at one point they became so engrossed in it that they stopped looking at their children for just a minute. After they finished laughing and talking, mom turned around to look for Jackie, but he wasn't where she last saw him. She didn't panic. There were a lot of people at this party. He had to be somewhere. So she started walking around just to put eyes on him, so to speak. Mrs. Copeland was searching but couldn't find Jackie. She grabbed her husband and said, I can't find our son. You need to help me. As they were searching everywhere, they ran into their daughters. They hurried over to them and said, Do you know where your brother is? And by the looks on their faces, Jackie's father could tell right away that the girls have no idea where their brother is. And almost immediately, he yells out to the group, I can't find my son. The partygoers must have heard the panic in the father's voice because the entire picnic stopped what they were doing and began searching for Jackie. They were looking everywhere. The house was on a hillside, so searchers ran there to see if Jackie had wandered down there. After 20 minutes of the entire party searching for Jackie with no luck, his parents called the state police. Since the report came in for a missing child, the police showed up in full force. They brought bloodhounds, and they immediately began searching the surrounding area. However, the dogs were unable to pick up a scent, and the officers, along with the rest of the volunteers, were unable to locate any clues as to where Jackie could have gone. The consensus of the opinion was that he must have wandered into the woods at some point and gotten lost. After being in the forest, looking around, and seeing how difficult it was to walk, because it was basically just this gigantic swamp marshland. They turned back and assumed that they would eventually stumble upon him if they kept looking. This terrain was very difficult, and there was no possible way a toddler could navigate it. But as they backtracked and continued the search, Jackie never turned up. Everyone, but especially his parents, were distraught. How did a wonderful afternoon party turn into this? Where was our son? Mrs. Copeland was hysterical and was convinced that someone abducted Jackie. Even worse, nightfall had come, and they would have to put the search on hold for the evening. Jackie's parents and some of their friends searched all night. Even in the pitch dark, it was nearly impossible. When the search resumed early the following morning, there was a group of people who went searching way far away outside of the search perimeter. They were over two miles away just looking for any sign of young Jackie. They had traveled two miles into this marshy jungle at this point. They finally got to the property of an oil refinery plant. They weren't actually near the plant, but they could see it off in the distance. They were on the water's edge looking for clues, footprints, shoes, any type of clothing that might give them a hint to where Jackie was. They hadn't found any signs and they were about to turn back when all of a sudden one of the searchers happened to look up and saw something dart behind a tree. 
He kept looking and couldn't believe his eyes as someone peeked their head around the trunk of a tree that was located on this mini island. It appeared as though the child was looking over its shoulder at the people on the bank before ducking behind the tree. The searchers couldn't believe what they were seeing, so they made a beeline for the island. The group of searchers kept their eyes fixed on the tree that the boy was behind. The boy stayed hidden, spinning around the tree and staying out of sight, even as the group was approaching and calling out his name. And much to their surprise, it turned out to be Jackie Copeland, and he seemed okay, in good spirits even. They carried Jackie back two miles to the party property and got him to the local hospital. A doctor examined him and concluded that the only injuries he sustained were a few scratches here and there. He was dehydrated and hungry, of course, but other than that, he was in excellent health. A few weeks later, the Copeland family was reunited with their son. A local newspaper reached out to them to see how they were doing and inquire about how a two-year-old could end up miles away from where he was last seen. Mr. and Mrs. Copeland explained that they had brought their son home from the hospital and had cleaned him up and fed him. They questioned him about what had happened. Why did you wander off, and how did you get so far? Jackie was an extremely bright kid, advanced for his age, but regardless, he was still only two, still a baby. When they asked questions like, how did you get to that spot? Did someone take you there? He would answer in his best big boy voice and was surprisingly understandable. The story seemed unlikely, but the part that really struck everyone was that Jackie never changed his story. Each time he was asked and told the story, it was consistent. And so his story went that while he was at the picnic, he saw someone peeking out from behind a tree, playing hide and seek. When he walked towards this person or creature, they would run to another tree deeper in the forest, and Jackie would follow him trying to play with him. Jackie followed him until they reached a scary place called the Awful Dark. Jackie described this place that was really dark and was surrounded by animals. He couldn't see them, but he could see their eyes and they were making noises, howling like wolves. But Jackie was safe because there was a big monster that walked with him and led him through the awful dark, keeping him safe. Jackie has maintained this story, and it really explains how Jackie could have gotten so far off the beaten path. Many people have disputed the idea that Jackie was actually led into the forest by some kind of being or creature, even though his account has remained relatively consistent for a child of his age. Also, noting the fact that he imitated the behavior of the person or creature he claimed to have seen in the forest, mimicking a game of hide-and-seek when searchers showed up. However, what cannot be disputed is the fact that young two-year-old Jackie would not be able to do this alone. Experts agree that no one his age could trek through these conditions. Navigating the swamp and thick forest in addition to the overall distance over two miles that his little legs would have had to carry him. If he were alone, he would have likely given up and sat down when he got tired, and upon realizing he was lost, and would have started crying like most kids would, and searchers would have found him relatively easily. Whatever the case may be, I think I speak for everyone when I say, I'm happy that young Jackie Copeland was found safe and sound, 
and that he turned out to be not so good at hide and seek. Let me know in the comments what you think about this story.